This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c everyone. Welcome to the Peds Doc Talk podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mona, where each week I hope to educate and inspire you in your journey through parenthood with information on your most common concerns as a parent and interviews with fellow parents and experts in the field. My hope is you leave each week feeling more educated, confident, and empowered in the decisions you make for your child. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode where you are all in for a treat because I have my friend, my work BFF and fellow (laughs) pediatrician, Dr. Marie Jones, here today to talk about outdated advice. Welcome, Dr. Jones, for being here today. Oh my God, Mona, I'm so excited. I've been waiting for this for like a year and a half. (laughs) I am so excited to have you on. I was talking to Marie on what episode she could come on because she, again, is one of my best friends and work colleagues. And we thought that this would be the best one. And we're going to be talking about outdated advice that you probably got maybe from your pediatrician, but also from family members. So it's going to be a really good discussion on why the following things are not always true. Uh, And I can't wait to get started. So thank you again for being here. You're so welcome. Can I just say before we start, I have to say this, I am so incredibly proud of you. As as your friend, as your colleague, to see everything that you've been able to accomplish in such a short amount of time, it's, it's really so inspiring, Mona. And when you told me about starting, you know, your Instagram page about a year and a half, a little bit more than a year and a half ago, I knew immediately that you were going to rock it just because that's who you are and that you would be super successful and that you would change lives, right? We've talked about this and you totally have, you put your heart and soul into this and it completely shows. So you know that I'm your fan. I'm like a huge fan and I'm so proud of you. And this is just the beginning for you. And I'm super excited to be part of this and to be here today. So Oh, Marie, you're so sweet. And it's just so great having friends and again, a fellow pediatrician and mom, by the way, I didn't even mention that you're a mom of two who really (laughs) supports me in this journey. You know, I love the support from everyone. But when I get it from someone who's in the field, who's also a mom um, as well, it's just so reassuring because it makes me affirm that, you know, all the things that I'm saying, you also resonate with as well, um, being in the same boat as I am, you know, so I, I just love that. And you're so sweet for saying that. And 
you have been such a support from the beginning and it means so much to me but okay now I'm all sad before the episode really no, even starts. It's happy, no happy happy <laughs> so sweet well we're gonna get started because we have okay. obviously a few things and as a heads up um this is again just education and there's so many more things that we probably could have gone through but we just kind of picked um some 10 things that we thought were really useful for this episode yeah. So the first one, and this is, again, things that you may have heard that are not always true, is you have to wait for tummy time and putting alcohol on an umbilical cord to clean it. So basically newborn advice that you may have gotten. So what do you think about those two things, Marie? So we'll start, we'll start one by one. So the waiting until tummy time. So many patients I see in the office, either as newborn visits or even patients that I haven't seen ever until they come to the office at one month um, because they've been seeing, you know, other physicians. We talk about tummy time, right? Because that's one of the core things that we always go through as pediatricians. And often their response is, oh, I can start tummy time now. I didn't know I could start so early. I thought I needed to wait until my baby was older. So it's so important to talk about this because tummy time really should be started in the hospital or as soon as you get home, really day one, right? If you can, of course, there's some limitations, right? And to be honest, out of all of the parents that tell me they didn't know they could start tummy time, they're all actually already doing it, Mona. Mm -hmm. So many parents don't even realize that practicing tummy time in the newborn period can just be chest to chest, you know, or just skin to skin in the hospital or carrying a baby, you know, tummy down, you know, and allowing them to look around. So all of those things are already doing tummy time. So it doesn't have to be quote unquote fancy, you know, it doesn't have to be on the mat and all this stuff just yet. But you start with a few minutes a day, and then you build up and then you gradually move to being on a mat or whatnot by, you know, one month, of course, always supervised, right? Always, always, always supervised tummy time. By two months, most of the tummy time should be done on the floor at this point, right? Because we love floor time. Yeah. And then by the time they're three months of age, they really are doing about an hour total a day, right? We could do them in little spurts. Um, but this is so important because especially since the Safe to Sleep initiative, you know, used to be called um, Back to Sleep, there is a lot more positional plagiocephaly, which for those of you that don't know what that is, it's just a flattening in the back of the head, because babies are more on their backs now, especially when they're sleeping, right? And we know babies sleep a lot in the beginning. So one way to prevent this is by doing more supervised tummy time when the baby is awake. So and it also, as you know, promotes visual, motor, sensory developments, um, helps increase the neck and back strength. And all of these things will help babies eventually roll over, sit up, crawl, and lots of developmental benefits in the long run for tummy time. Oh, yeah. I I will say that there is some belief that, oh, if your baby doesn't do tummy time, it's not the end of the world. And I will say that, yes, some babies do not do great tummy time. But I think every parent should make a solid effort in making it a priority. So what I don't want parents to hear is that tummy time is not important. It is. I agree with you for those two few reasons, right? The the flattening of the head, but also the, the development of the motor, um, the motor skills and the strength in the upper arms and the chest as well, um, and the right. neck. So I don't want it to be this pressure situation where parents are like, oh my gosh, I didn't, you know, I didn't do tummy time, I'm a bad parent. But, oh yeah. <laughs> but I want it to be that, hey, this is something that's part of our developmental activities. And when they're newborns, there's not much you're doing with them when they're awake, right. but this is one exactly. of those big things. And like you said perfectly, on your chest, 
you know, carrying them face forward on your arm, you know, obviously supported. All these things are developing those muscles. And then as you, as they get older, moving to the floor. But I'm happy that you also agree that tummy time is useful. It has a lot of benefits. And, you know, if firsthand seeing the benefits of it with, you know, Ryan, I was like, yeah, I mean, this was something that really helped him to eventually crawl and eventually get the strength to pull to stand. It's, it's all a progression of physical and motor skills. So definitely agree with you that you don't have to wait till the umbilical cord falls off. You don't have to wait right. for anything. You can start it supervised again, as you said, um, beautifully as, as soon as you come home, but even in the hospital too. Right. Exactly. And, and exactly how you said it too is, I don't want parents stressing out because they forgot to do tummy time, you know, in a day. This is not something, you know, if you forget to do it because you're absolutely exhausted or whatnot, it's not the end of the world. And honestly, you probably already did it yeah. <laughs> without even knowing that you did it, you know. So but it's just something that I try to talk to my parents about just incorporating in their routine and being aware of what it is that they're doing. Like you said, they don't, you know, there's not much to do with newborn. So this is actually one time that you can really bond with them, yeah. you know, and do that time with them. So it, it's, you know, it's important. Yeah, definitely. And then what about the alcohol question that we had? Right. So I still, you know, I get that a lot in my parents that have a child that's much older. So they did one thing, you know, with the older child. And then now they're having a newborn. They're like, oh, well, with my first one, you know, I, I used alcohol. And with this one, now everything's changing. And yes, everything is changing, right? So we know even with this pandemic, everything is changing. So um, alcohol used to be thought that the advice from pediatrician was you have to use alcohol around the belly, the belly button the umbilical cord, because it would help prevent infections, right? But they did studies about this, like, is this actually true? And what they found is they did um, a study, and they looked at kids that we did alcohol swabs, okay, twice a day, and some that we just did dry care, which is what the recommendations are now. And they actually found that kids that we did absolutely nothing with, we just left it alone, though the separation time was actually shorter mm -hmm. in those kids. And the reason for that is because the, in order for the umbilical cord to fall off, it needs bacteria. So when you're using alcohol on it constantly, you know, a few times a day, you're actually killing that bacteria that it needs to fall off. So it's really not recommended anymore. It's not needed. Okay. And it was also thought in the past that it would help prevent infections. And then that was found to also not be true. There was no more increase in infection in the kids that we did just dry umbilical care versus the ones that we used alcohol. So we really don't recommend that anymore. And in my opinion, it's one less thing that parents have to think about. Yeah. <laughs> so to me, that's a win-win. It's like one less thing that in your mind that you have to worry about. So, And I still find that there are some pediatricians and even maybe some hospital staff that even in modern times, like right now, are still saying to clean it with alcohol. The other day, I had a newborn come in and they said, oh, yeah, the hospital told us to use alcohol. And I'm like, wait, what? What hospital? Um, so there is still <laughs> this outdated advice happening now. So I think it's important that, yes, you don't need to do anything for the umbilical cord. Just keep it. Obviously, if it gets Leave wet, it yeah, if it gets wet, just pat dry it. Not, again, not the end of the world, but you don't need to do anything for it. And like you said, that's amazing. One less thing to do. Uh, exactly. But yes, that's great. And I kind of transitioning to another topic in the newborn phase, not necessarily being said by pediatricians, I would hope, but more so elderly family members or old school family members is the next one, which is sleeping on the belly is fine as a newborn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
so <laughs> I know, I know, I know you and I are, are, we're almost the same person, right? So yeah. we feel the same about this. Um, so this is a topic that we talk about constantly as pediatricians. And, you know, I know you and I both have this conversation multiple times a day with parents because it's so incredibly important. Safe sleeping practices, you know, are so important, especially in this first, you know, six months of life. And the reason for that is because it's dangerous, right? And it's dangerous because of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, which is still the leading uh, cause of death in infants, okay, in the first year of life. So most commonly, obviously happening between two to four months, Mm -hmm. okay? And that whole back to sleep, you know, safe to sleep campaign really started from like the late 1980s to early 1990s, where, uh, you know, several countries in Europe and Australia and New Zealand started to publish studies that reveal the link between SIDS and infants sleeping on their stomach. And what research found was that babies that were placed on their stomachs, their risk of dying from SIDS increased twofold, at least twofold. You know, so this is how the whole Safe to Sleep campaign, formerly known as, you know, Back to Sleep, as a lot of people know it, started to really help bring awareness to certain practices that increase the infant's risk of SIDS. You know, and obviously through this research, we found out that they're actually much safer on um, their backs than they are on their stomachs, you know, Mm -hmm. and it actually used to be thought too, and I'm sure you've heard this in the, in the office as well, that you can put them on their sides, you know, and I just say definitely no to even the sides part. And the reason for that is because research also showed that children on their sides are more likely to roll over and that becomes dangerous, right? So especially if you have a baby that's swaddled and that baby rolls over, there's no way that baby's going to be able to roll him or herself back. So it becomes very, very, very dangerous um, to place babies on their stomachs. So I always advise in the office to please, please, please have the baby sleep in their own crib, their own bassinet on their backs. It's really the safest place uh, for them to be. Yes, sleeping on belly as a newborn is not okay, no matter what your parents tell you, because a lot of this is generational too, that, hey, you guys all slept on your belly, you guys slept with blankets in your crib and stuffed animals, and that is still happening. I mean, we still see, you know, even on social media that you'll see people with stuffed animals and blankets and bumpers all in that crib. Um, Whether that child's sleeping on their back or belly, the safe sleep is so important that it really should just be a bare space with the baby on their back, nothing soft, nothing at all in that crib um, with baby, um, no matter what is marketed Mm -hmm. to you, because there's a lot of things on the market now still. Oh, yeah. The bumpers still come with the whole set. Yeah. The bumpers still come with the whole set, even though they've now changed the, you know, the cribs. Yeah. So they still come because it's cute. I don't I don't blame parents for buying it. It's super cute, but it's very unsafe. And I mean, if you go Um, on, you know, Etsy, like Etsy has all these things that are not regulated, right? Parent people are mm -hmm. creating their own products. So parents are so confused because they're like, well, I'm able to buy it. If I'm able to buy it, why is it not okay? And, And everyone has to remember that the regulation behind a lot of these products is just not up to date and it's not there. So you yeah. are going to hear recalls and you're going to hear, oh, well, now it's not safe. Well, it probably wasn't even safe to begin with. And so, you know, <laughs> it's really important that people understand that when your pediatrician saying, hey, put your child back to back to sleep or, you know, on their back, that nothing should be in there. It's because that is what is researched now to be the most mm-hmm. safe 
thing for your child. And I agree, those things look adorable. I even saw them when I was searching just for, you know, random things. And I was like, oh, no, 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 like, you can't put your child in this sort of, um, you know, these sort of bumpers. And going back to what you're saying, tummy time and plagiocephaly, they even sell these head pillows. Um, oh, you know, these yes. shaping pillows, which, you know, a lot of you mm-hmm. listening, these are not proven to be safe in any way. So even if they're marketed as, you know, breathable or whatever, I would really, you know, encourage you not to buy these things because we do not know if they're breathable. We do not know the safety regulations behind these. They're not considered safe. And I, I'm sure you agree too. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. And, and we definitely get patients in the office that have that. And, you know, thankfully they, they will ask you know, and then of course I tell them about my concerns at that point in time. Um, but yeah, I mean, the first time I heard about it, I said, pillow yeah. for the baby? Yeah. What? <laughs> you know, and then I had to do my own research. I was like, oh my gosh, there's actually this out yes. there. This is completely unsafe. <laughs> the, the beauty about being a modern parent myself and for you too, right? You have two children who are like un- under 10 yeah. um, is the fact that I'm able to kind of know what's out there. You know, I think about our colleagues who are a little bit older and have older children. They're like, wait, what? What do you mean? They probably are so confused. But since I am a mother with a one, almost one-year-old that is able to kind of know what's out there, what's being told to new parents, you know? It really does help me, right. obviously, on this podcast and the Instagram and with our families in the office, right? Because we know like right. what's out there and what's being told to parents um, in this modern age. So yes, I agree. No pillows. Um, but yes, in this in this first, you know, definitely when the baby is home, you're you're always always placing them on their back. And your pediatrician should give you handouts about safe mm-hmm. sleep, even if they're not talking to you verbally about it. There should be some handouts that are given to you, um, you know, either on your patient portal or um, handed out at the end of the visit. So please take a look and read that. And remember, it comes from a place of research and science. Yep. Um, the next one is another popular one that maybe even some pediatricians are saying, but I know it comes from family members too. Okay. So give your baby formula or add oatmeal to their bottles to help them sleep longer? <laughs> so <laughs> let's start with the oatmeal. And and I have to yeah. say, Mona, I really, I really do feel for parents, right? We've both been there. You know, when when I had Aiden, who's now almost 10, like, yikes, right? He's making me feel so old. Yeah. Um, you know, my <laughs> husband and I were both third year medical students, right? And I naively thought, I've been in medical school for three years. I've studied like how many, it feels like a thousand yeah. exams, right? I can pull an all-nighter like on the drop of a hat any day. I've taken my boards. I've studied for 18 hours a day. How bad can this really be? You know, I, I could handle being tired. I can totally do this. Wow. <laughs> that is all I have to oh, say. Yeah. Wow, 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 wow. I could not have been more wrong. I was exhausted. I mean, beyond exhausted. And I mean, there are days... I don't even know if I showered, you know what I mean? Because I was so tired. So when I say I get it, I get it. Trust me, we get it, right? If there was a quick fix to making a baby sleep longer, I would have used that, you know, 10 years ago for sure. But unfortunately, there just isn't. And putting oatmeal in a baby's bottle is just not the answer. And we've studied this, right? So we we practice evidence-based medicine. So we don't say these things just because it's a feeling. We say it because we've read the literature behind it. And studies have actually disproven that theory, and and actually shown that it can come with, you know, some risks. So a lot mm-hmm. of times, you know, parents 
you know, they think that it works. They think that they start doing the oatmeal and then, you know, a week or two weeks later, the baby is now, you know, sleeping, you know, through the night. And, and I really think that by that time, the reason for that is because, well, one of the reasons is because by the time that the parents are really like desperate enough to try the whole cereal in the bottle trick, it might be just about the same time that the babies start to sleep a little bit longer because this stuff takes time, yeah. right? So this, of course, makes parents think, aha, I found it. You know, I added cereal and then two weeks later, my baby's sleeping great. And it just perpetuates this myth when really all they needed to do is just wait a little bit longer. And um, you have to also think about the potential dangers, right, of adding cereal, you know, to them. E example, it can make them more gassy, right? It can mm -hmm. cause them to have more stools in the middle of the night. So really, this can actually backfire, okay, and cause more problems in terms of sleep. But it can also teach a baby that he has to be completely full to fall asleep. And yeah. in my opinion, and, and I'm sure you share this too, one of the most dangerous consequences of adding cereal to the bottle is that it can lead to overeating. Right. Mm -hmm. And we talk about this all the time. And I know you're super passionate about this as much as I am and how we teach our kids to have a healthy, positive relationship with food and create good habits. And to me, this is kind of doing the opposite of that. It really teaches them to overeat. Right. Because babies yeah. are born with a mechanism. They know how much to eat. And when they're full and we say this to parents all the time, watch for their cues, watch for their cues. You know, when they're full, they'll spit out, you know, the, the nipple, you know, and adding cereal completely disrupts that mechanism. And it actually tricks them into eating a lot more calories than what they need. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess meals. Chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with Factor Meals because they're ready in two minutes, no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious Factor Meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood 
Good explains. Studies have been showed on this, actually, right, because we're doing a lot of study on childhood obesity and all of those things. And it's looking at the causes of obesity in children. And they found that when you disrupt that infant's ability to self-regulate their hunger um, or how much they eat, can, it can actually later on lead to obesity in childhood. So I'm super passionate about this. And I'm not saying that there's no time for adding oatmeal. Of course, there are medical conditions, you know, talk to your pediatrician, but doing it for this reason, particularly just so that they will sleep longer, it's just not the answer. And you said it perfectly that there are some situations where your pediatrician will say, namely like things like reflux. Sometimes we do recommend it, but your pediatrician will guide you on how to mix it, how much to add per, you know, per ounce of breast, uh, you know, pump breast milk or formula. But yes, it is not meant for sleep assistance. And it's just, it commonly is said. And I, you know, even on my social media, it's like, Hey, I want to add this. Or another reason people are hearing to add oatmeal is to, that they're to gain, to gain some weight, which yes, maybe there might be some, some reasoning behind that, but it's really something that should be discussed with your pediatrician and they will guide you. You know, your pediatrician knows your baby's weight and your growth history, but don't just start adding these things. Not even just like she said, for the, um, the overfeeding comment, which I completely agree with, like you said, but also just for the risk of a little baby getting something thicker. We don't want it to be so thick that it becomes a choking hazard. You know, they're, they're not meant to have thicker liquids until much later. So we don't want you to just do it just because you read it or were told by a family member. Always clear these things with your child's doctor. And I, I agree with that. And same thing with the formula. You know, if your baby's breastfeeding, you do not need to, in, you do not need to introduce formula to help them sleep longer. Now, if yes. you want to introduce formula because you want to introduce formula because that's your choice, awesome. But do not think that your baby is not a good sleeper because you are breastfeeding them. And Marie said perfectly that that timing of when, you know, people give the oatmeal and then all of a sudden they start <laughs> to sleep. Babies, their, their sleep rhythm, you know, the melatonin that they produce, their circadian rhythm doesn't really start to come into play around six weeks to about three months. Babies are so different. So in the first six weeks of life, do not be alarmed if your child is not sleeping long stretches, even in the first two months of life, three months. But by three months, you likely will start to see some stretch. Mm-hmm. If you're not, you speak to your pediatrician, but you should start to see stretches as the baby gets older. And if you're not, you talk to your doctor, but it's so important to remember that baby sleep is not founded on the weight of the food, the addition of oatmeal. It's just their rhythm. And that's something that we can't mess with sometimes as much as we want to. Mm-hmm. I completely, completely agree. Now, the next one is one that I am seeing from a lot of non-pediatricians. So I don't think I don't think I've heard any pediatrician offer this advice, but more family members or you know people on social media. The next one is your baby needs a walker to help them learn how to walk. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, Mona, this is just simply I know you know this, but it's just simply not true. Um, and this myth really concerns me because they can actually be mm-hmm. really dangerous. Right. And don't get me wrong. Yeah. Babies love them right? Because at this age, babies love to sit up, they're curious, they want to walk, you know, they want to go places, they want to be on the move. But the harsh truth is that they're really dangerous. And, you know, again, I I know I'm like a broken record here with with the studies, but it's true, they did studies, and they looked at 24 years of ER visits, okay? And then there was more than 230,000 kids, less than 15 months that were treated in the ER, Okay, for injuries related to walkers. So that's literally 10,000 kids a year 
okay, that are being injured and walkers. Mm-hmm. That That's a lot of kids, a lot of kids. And some of these injuries are obviously, you know, kids falling downstairs, which just terrifies me. Okay, as you can imagine, this can be significant head injuries, neck injuries. I've heard of children going out onto the patio and falling into the pool and near drowning or drowning episodes and walkers. Okay, because they move and the parents put them, you know, there because they're comfortable and but they can move around. And sometimes they can reach things that they're really not supposed to reach things that are sharp things that are, you know, hot. Um, So it becomes really, really, really dangerous to put kids in walkers. And did you know, that in Canada, and I, I'm saying this because I'm Canadian, but in Canada, walkers are actually illegal. Did you yes. Did you, isn't that, wow, I was like, oh my gosh, you could actually be fined up to $100,000 and face up to six months in jail for selling these in Canada. I was like, go Canada. Can I be honest? Canada, Canadian medicine, like I actually look at a lot of Canadian pediatric recommendations along with the AAP. Right. Because I find that even in so many, we could, I could do a whole episode with a Canadian, we should, about the things that are happening yeah. there that are not happening in the, in the States. But I agree with you. They ban it and they don't even sell it. But yet they're available everywhere in the United States because, hello, it's money and it's marketing and it's a business. And right. it's sad kind of going back to the sleep stuff, right? Right. That people are able to market these things and sell it, but that doesn't mean you need them, nor are they safe. Right. So when you talk about walkers, are you? T- there's two types of walkers, right. in my opinion. There's the ones that they sit in, which absolutely I agree with you is a no-no. I also don't like the ones that children push. Do you ever, you know, like the ones that like... Um, like, I don't want to name brands, but the ones that you yes. push, like the child standing outside, do you do you ever um, allow any of those, like the one that they push to, or you're also a no on both of them? So it depends on where they are developmentally. Yeah. Okay. So really, when they buy the ones that they sit on, okay, those are definitely yes. a no. And, and yes. to go back to the whole, they think that it makes kids, parents think that, or family may think that a child may walk sooner, that couldn't be further from the truth. Because the reason for that is because walking isn't so much about them learning how to use their legs. It's more about them learning to like pull to stand, putting weight on their legs, developing those muscles that they need to walk, learning to balance, okay, and take those steps without support. So when you put your child in a walker, they're not really learning any of that. You know, they need to learn all of this on the floor. And this is why we're such big advocates for tummy time and floor time, because at different stages, you know, this is how they learn to develop and how they reach those milestones. So if it's a kid that's already, you know, taking individual steps on their own, you know, and it's in a safe environment, if they're pushing, I never allow, you know, the pushing one without parental supervision, because honestly, both of my kids had it, but I was there like the entire time, because what will happen is if they're not ready to walk, that, you know, they can't balance themselves, and they will face plant, you know, and I've had teeth injuries, I've had lacerations in the face, you know, from from these things. So they can be very, very, very dangerous. I used to have like my foot on the front of the wheel so that they couldn't really push it like more than where my foot was. So I was always definitely right there. If it's a child that's already independently walking, I think those walkers are fine you know, because they're already walking on their own, and they can just push and play and and do their little things. But a child who's learning to walk, I still stay clear of those too. I don't know how you feel about it. 
Yes, I completely agree. And it's, um, yes, the one that they're sitting in or sitting on top of that is absolute no, no. The pushing ones we don't have because, um, we just chose not to, but I, I think they're fine once that child is a confident walker. And I'm actually going to be having a play date Fridays with Ryan about walking because you said it perfectly that in order for a child to walk, they need to have the motor strength, which they're not going to develop in a walker. And they also need the confidence practice and balance practice, you know, the ability to feel how their body is moving. And you'll see it when they're learning to walk, right? They'll, they'll, they'll stand up and they'll try to stabilize Mm -hmm. themselves. They're not going to get that from a walker because the walker is helping them do that. So they're going to almost use the walker as a crutch. And so I agree though, that once the child has shown me ability to take steps on their own, walk on their own, this becomes more of a fun thing for them because they light up. I mean, they love pushing things around. And so then it becomes a fun thing and not a developmental addition. It's, it's a toy versus a, okay, this is what's going to teach you a skill. So yeah. And you said the research perfectly that actually the using walkers delay the ability to walk. And so I see it all the time. And I love, I love you so much. Just the way you, you know, your passion for development and your passion for floor time um, and your passion for just allowing children to do what they're innately able to do, which think about, you know, I always say like, think about if you were in the middle of nowhere with no technology, children are still developing, right? So mm-hmm. all these things we don't need right. any of these things. A children will learn to walk by just being on we the floor, don't. right? A children will learn to sleep without we any don't. excess stuff. They'll learn to eat the foods we eat, right? You don't need to do special things for a kid. Just think about it from like an evolutionary standpoint, you know, like we add on all these mm-hmm. extra things, you know, because we think like, oh, it needs to happen, but save your money. You know, if you want the walker, the one that we're talking about that you push, go ahead and get it. But if you're like, eh, do I want to save the money? Is it an eyesore in my house? You don't need to get this. It's more of an additional thing when your child is showing the solid skills that they're able to walk. I agree with that completely. Yes. Yes. You said that perfectly. The next one is one from, I think, abuelas and grandmas. In our <laughs> practice, we see this all the time. All the grandmas in my office are always telling their their children this about their grandkids, that bouncing your baby on your legs will make them bow-legged. Mm-hmm. Please, please bounce your baby on your legs. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I tell my parents. Please do it. It's so much fun. It's even fun for us. Yeah. You know, you see them smile, you're bonding, you're laughing, you know, they love it. And I promise this is not what will make them bow legged, you know? Um, so bow leg is a condition in which a child's leg curve outwards at the knees. Yeah. So when a child with bow leg stands with their toes like pointing forward, their ankles actually touch their knee and their knees remain apart. OK, but the things that the thing that most parents don't know is that bow legs is actually considered a normal part of growth in babies and in toddlers, you know, and bow legs often develops in the first year, you know, of life as part of a natural growth for no known cause. Okay. Some babies, I don't know if you've ever been asked this in a newborn nursery before, but some babies are actually born with, you know, a little bit of bowing in their legs. And sometimes I have parents in the nursery be really concerned in the hospital about the newborns, you know, the little curve that they have. And what I explain is like, he just, he or she just got out of a really tight spot. Yeah. (laughs) So it's normal for them to have a little bit of bowing. And it's the same thing with, you know, the toddlers. Okay. And this is called like physiologic bowing of the legs and it's completely normal. And it's not because you were having a blast, allowing your baby to stand 
hand or bouncing them, you know, up and down on your leg, despite what everybody tells you, it's completely safe to do this. Absolutely. And is there a time when you are concerned of Boeing? Yeah, for sure. So usually the first two, two and a half years, I, I don't worry about it. And also it depends on, you know, because we know with time, by the time kids, you know, reach three, their legs should start to straighten. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there definitely are conditions that we worry about, especially if there's an asymmetry, like one looks much yeah. more bowed, the kids are tripping, they're falling, you know, these kind of things, obviously we worry about them, you know, but what we're talking about is more, you know, the kids that are, you know, the six month old, seven month old, eight month old that they like to bounce on, you know, on everything because they like to stand. I've actually had, you know, during our exam, we move you know, babies around, right? So I had one that I was checking, you know, tone and I and I stood him up and, and grandma actually asked me to not do that because it would cause, you know, bowing of the legs. <laughs> so I actually had this in the office, which was great, a great opportunity for me to educate the entire family, right? Yeah. I have grandma there, I have mom there, I have dad there, you know, I have the whole family there. This is obviously pre-COVID when other parents were allowed to be in the room. But, you know, it's really, really, really important. It's not going to cause any kind of issues. And like I said, you know, yes, if this is a true bowing of the legs, then you need to, if you're concerned about any bowing, always talk to your pediatrician because we will be able to examine the baby. We'll let you know what we think. And we know when it becomes a red flag, right? And we know when to refer. Um, but doing this for little babies is it, not going to cause any damage. I agree completely. And I agree with the when to refer when we are concerned, which is the the asymmetry, which mm -hmm. I have actually picked up a few this past, you know, since we've been working at this practice together, but I picked up a few and I was like, oh, wow. And yes, it, it meaning one one leg is literally a C while the other right. one is just per, like not as bowed. So asymmetries when they're starting to walk, obvious tripping. And I'm not talking like that tripping that they do because they're learning how to walk. It's the tripping that you're like, wait, the leg is looking asymm asymmetrical and we're also having tripping which is rare, but yes, you are not going to really harm, rare, yeah. you're not going to cause your child to be bowed. If they'd become bowed, like you said, it's because of just a natural um, development process, but you did not cause that. So no matter what your mother says or um, grandma of the child, do not worry about that. You can bounce with your baby. It's perfectly fine with them and for the development of the, that, of those legs. So I agree with that. Um, that's a good one. And I'm happy we talked about that because I hear that all the time. The <laughs> next one is again, outdated from, I would say not a pediatrician, no pediatrician should be saying this anymore, but more so family members. It's okay to give your baby or small child aspirin for a fever. Right. And this is actually really ironic that that we're talking about this because I hadn't heard about this in a while of, of parents giving this. And then most recently, I'd say probably in the last six months, I've had about three to four patients receive aspirin. Mm. Um, so it's definitely not something that's, you know, not happening. Okay, so it, it is happening a lot more, I guess, than I thought it would, it was happening. But thankfully, it's not something that we hear super often. But it's definitely something we need to talk about, because it can be life threatening. Yeah. So the reason we avoid giving aspirin or any salicylates containing products, which includes actually Pepto-Bismol, which they still sell on the market for kids, right? Mm -hmm. um, is due to the risk of them developing a condition called Ray's syndrome. So what Ray's syndrome is, it's a very rare, acute, potentially life-threatening condition, okay, that can really affect all the organs, but mainly the liver and the brain. And it can cause a varying symptoms from vomiting, lethargy, and that can very rapidly progress 
to delirium, seizures, and coma, even within hours, okay? So this is super, super, super scary. And I don't know if you've ever seen a child with Ray syndrome. I actually fortunately had not. I don't know if you've ever seen any kids no, like this I in residency not. in the So thankfully, we haven't. But it, um, it happens, okay? And it's, yeah. it's more common in kids that are recovering from a viral illness, so especially the flu, which we do see very frequently, okay? And varicella, which thankfully we don't see as much now because of vaccinations. Okay, but it can also be with kids that have had just a common cold and parents give aspirin for, you know, malaise or fever or whatnot. And when you look at the CDC um, numbers, it says that there are still anywhere from 500 to 1200 cases of race syndrome in the U.S. every year. Can you wow, believe yeah, that? Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot of kids. Yeah. And that's super alarming for something that, you know, we we really need to just advise our children when we're talking about it. You know, we could say they can use ibuprofen or acetaminophen, you know, but don't use aspirin. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to start really saying that more often, yeah. okay, because I don't think that I include that part enough. And I think maybe parents just, obviously, they don't know, right? I mean, it's called a baby aspirin. Yes. <laughs> so it's counterintuitive that you can't give it to a baby or a child, you know, so it, it's definitely, of course, if you give your child aspirin, okay, it's still very, very, very rare to have Ray's syndrome. So, you know, you, you don't need to worry too much. I would call, you know, call your pediatrician. They could advise you about all the signs and, and what to look at, um, what to look for, okay, in terms of this, okay. But really ibuprofen or acetaminophen is, is really much safer and it's just not worth the risk to give aspirin to a child for fever. Yeah, and you said it perfectly. It's a risk. It doesn't mean an automatic. You gave aspirin, you are going to have Ray syndrome. But it's it has a, it has a lot to do with the virus that a child may be fighting, which we don't know always if is it flu or what other virus. But right. it's a virus that they're fighting. Plus, the addition of that aspirin can cause a sort of metabolic process that leads to this syndrome. And it's just not worth it when there's other options available. So exactly. if you have Tylenol and you have Motrin, and again, uh, Motrin is over six months, Tylenol is over two months, but you can always talk to your pediatrician on the dosing and make sure you do that. But it is so nice that we have other options that why are we giving aspirin if it's a risk there of this syndrome? And so right. I actually never really recommend aspirin. I don't know if you have an age that you say that it's okay, but in the pediatric world, I don't even bring it up. I just mm -hmm. say, no, do Tylenol and Motrin. There's no age that I say to do it just because of race, but also because we have other options. Is there an age that you say it's okay or no? No, I yeah. never recommend aspirin. I'm totally with you. I mean, Ray syndrome can happen all the way up to 16. So to yeah. me, that's like our whole population. But even my young adults that are 19, 20, I never say aspirin. I always say ibuprofen or Tylenol. And, you know, sometimes aspirin is recommended for certain medical situations like Kawasaki. I mean, I don't know if anyone listening has ever had a child with Kawasaki disease, but sometimes a cardiologist will prescribe aspirin, but of course they're out, they're looking at benefit versus risk. So if you're being prescribed it by a cardiologist or for some particular condition by your doctor, you know, especially something like Kawasaki's don't say, well, no, someone told me not to take aspirin. There are very rare situations that you may be prescribed it, but then that benefits outweigh the risk. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. If it's being prescribed by a physician, you know, obviously listen to your physician because they're looking at that. You know, what we're referring to is more, you know, you have aspirin, you know, because, you know, somebody in the house is taking aspirin yeah. and then you just give it to your child, um, you know, unprescribed. 
Yeah, that's a really important medical one because, again, these are all things that we don't want any harm. And, again, uh, it's not that you're going to get race, race syndrome, but it's that we don't want any increased risk. And that's why, you know, us pediatricians do this all day with the sleeping, right, all this stuff is that, yes, we hear stories of babies sleeping on their belly and turning out fine, but there is risk of doing all these things. There we probably risk. slept on our yeah, bellies and we were right. fine. We were and 80s. So, yeah, but it's the risk. And as a pediatrician, when we start to exactly. know all this, we don't want you to do anything that may increase risk of harm. And so that's why we are kind of um, fun killers sometimes, you know, and that's know, just what we have to totally. do. Um, the next one is also kind of a generational thing that, oh, hey, slapping is a good way to make your child behave. Oi. So <laughs> yes, that is a big oi. I agree with so you. So this is a really, very big oi. Really, really tough topic for me, Mona. Honestly, I mean, this is as tough for me as to talk about, you know, vaccination and why vaccines are so important. So because culturally, you know, spanking, slapping, corporal punishment is a method of discipline that's widely accepted in many parts of the world, you know, and on yeah. our clinic, we see such a diverse group of patients that this becomes a topic that we talk about pretty often. And, you know, a lot of parents, you know, we settle on a form of discipline method, just because it's how we were raised, like this is all that we know, right? But disciplining children is one of the most important, and at the same time, challenging responsibilities that we have as parents. And really, at every stage, it's hard, okay? So the toddler years, you're going to hit that pretty soon with Rye, that's not a walk in the park, yeah. okay? The school age years is also really difficult is when they start to talk back, and then the dreaded, you know, teenage years, which personally, I'm, I'm really terrified about. <laughs> Don't tell my kids. Okay. But it's really hard. It's really, really, really hard. And unfortunately, there's just no shortcuts to it, you know, and it's going to yeah. take a lot of patience. But we know now, okay, we know a lot about the effects of different methods of disciplining. And we also know that hitting or spanking, or, you know, using things to hit your children, it promotes fear, Mona, it doesn't mm -hmm. promote respect, mm -hmm. you know. So is it effective? Maybe in that particular moment, if you're threatening, you know, you're startling yeah. them, it'll stop them from doing whatever it is that you don't want them to do. But long term, there's not a chance that this is really going to be effective. And again, there's documented evidence that support this. We know that spanking, you know, is shown to create anger and resentment and fear and aggression in children. And I yeah. tell my parents all the time, remember, they're sponges, right? They, they mimic everything that they see at home. So if they get hit every single time that they do something wrong, what is that teaching them? You know, it's yeah. just teaching them that hitting is okay when someone is doing something wrong. And then they, in turn, start behaving this way with you, okay, with their siblings, with their families, with other children, with their pets. I mean, it's just, you know, a downward spiral. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so much about it. I mean, just thinking from a common sense perspective, like just think about it if what we, how we would feel like when we're upset, right? Like me and you having a conversation as adults, think about how ludicrous it sounds. If me and you are having, you know, a discussion and I'm really angry and you start slapping me, 
Yeah. Like, think about it. Like how stupid that sounds. <laughs> that, right? that would end our friendship. Yes. But think about it. Like how, you know, whenever I talk about parenting advice, I always say, think about how you would feel as an adult if you did the things to your child that if you were in that same situation, right? Yeah. How ludicrous that sounds that if your child's upset or does something wrong and you got, and they got slapped in the face or slapped on the tush or whatever, it doesn't do anything for that child. So you said that already it leads to them being more aggressive, which I completely agree. Um, it can also lead them to hit other people because that's the way they have been taught, but it also leads them to be afraid of their caregiver. And that serves no purpose because two things are going to happen when that child does do something bad. And remember they're human beings, they're going to do bad things. And it's not always an intentional, intentional thing. They're learning, they're learning about the world. They're learning what's right and wrong. And if every time they do something wrong, if they're hit or they're afraid to come to you, they're going to grow up being afraid of you. They're going to grow up thinking, well, I don't have a safe space in this home to talk about my feelings. And what we're trying to teach children is that it's okay to be upset it's okay to not love everything, but you do not hit, you do not do certain things. And there's different ways of doing it. Talking. Oh my gosh. Have we ever thought about talking to a child about this stuff? Um, <laughs> you know, hugging them when they're upset. I know it's stuff that we sometimes forget, but I always say, rem- think about how you would feel if you and your partner got into an argument and they started hitting or you started hitting and, or getting upset and how you would feel if you just basically, you know, it doesn't do anything. We wouldn't do it as adults. So why do we do it to our children? It's not a form. It's not okay with me to say, oh, well, you know, this is a very common parenting strategy. And I see it way too much for us to not talk about this on this episode. Even now, like in the office, it, it, it brings up this anxiety piece because, um, you know, I'm just like sitting there and I'm like, the parents are yelling at the child and the parents are putting their hand up and saying, you know, I will, when we leave here, you're going to get it. And I'm like, Oh my, like, I'm like, you know, and I have, I have to step in and say something, you know, and sometimes it's pulling the mom aside or saying, you know what, I am just saying it because I want you to understand where I'm coming from. And most of them are receptive to it. Some parents are like, well, I know, I know how to parent my kid. But it's important for us to talk about this on this episode because of the research and just the common sense way we look at this. No one wants to be hit. No one wants to be in fear. And fear is no way of disciplining a kid. I agree with that. You know, and I I say this all the time to my parents, that the foundation of effective discipline is respect. Yeah. Okay. And I bring this up over and over again. And my dad used to tell me this all the time growing up regarding respect. He would say, you have nothing without respect. He would say, you know, love passes through respect. And it's just been something that's been ingrained in me for as long as I can remember. And even now as a parent, I see what he meant. Because it goes both ways. If I respect you, mm-hmm. I will not put my hands on you. Yes. Right? So it's the same thing. We have a friendship. I would never put my hands on you. Yeah. You know? So so why do it to children? And positive discipline is really teaching your kids and guiding them, not forcing them to obey out of fear. Kids have to be taught that there are consequences to poor decisions. And that's okay, Mona. It's hard, but that's life. I mean, this is how they learn right from wrong. But our job as their parents is to teach them that and make sure that they understand that. But when you resort to violence and when you hit them, you're teaching them to react. (laughs) You're not teaching them to think. But yes, disciplining is hard and it's exhausting and it often will tug on your heartstrings, but you have to stay consistent no matter how hard it is. You know, and like I said, there's really no shortcuts to this. There isn't. I mean, that's why we are parents, right? If it was so easy, then, you know, 
it just it just wouldn't be this way. I mean, you you grow you grow from the most hardest experiences and the hardest moments, right? So you learn what works, you learn what works for your child, but what will never work is the hitting. What never will work will be the slapping. I mean, you can try every other method in the book with parenting and I'm okay with it, but do not put your hand on your child. I really encourage you to also remember you know, I, I'm trying it so hard too. It's not always going to happen about our voice, our raising our voices, which is the hardest thing. Seriously working on that already, right? Because I, I, I'm anticipating the toddler years. Um, but it's, if anything, it's the physical act. Like if you can avoid that, that is the most important thing. And of course you may make a mistake, especially if you were raised in a family that there was slapping and hitting. Remember that it is okay to make a mistake. Um, it's, it's, and then you can apologize to your child. Like, you know, I'm big on that. You know, like you were saying that respect is two ways. If you do lose your cool on your child, whether it's yelling, whether it's slapping, it's okay to tell them when you're in a calm state, you know, earlier, um, you know, Ryan, I, I was upset and I yelled or, you know, I shouldn't have done that. That can happen. And you can apologize to your child as, you know, if for the things that you do, that's not showing signs of weakness, that's showing signs that you're human and that you'll do better, you know? And I think parents, parents forget that they can be vulnerable with their children while still keeping a boundary. Yeah. Oh, completely. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought provoking experts and friends at Mindful Mama. We know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky, wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. I've definitely had to apologize to Aiden in the past for yelling or, you know, losing my cool. And, and I think that's what makes us human. You know, at the end of the day, we have to remember we're, we're parents. I mean, you and I were pediatricians, but we're also parents. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we lose it too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, it's, 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 it's normal part of just being a human being. Yeah. Oh, this was a good one. We have a few more. So I want to yeah. do a few more because these, these were, have all been so good. But the next one, ooh, this one's a good one because I'm sure everyone's all over the place on what to, dis- what to do with their child. Every boy needs to be circumcised. Mm. Okay. This one's a tough one. Yeah, it is. And I, and I really think it's still controversial. To yes, be honest, it is controversial. Because yeah. I mean, circumcision is still definitely the most common procedure done on newborn males here in the United States. Yeah. There's, there's many countries that actually don't recommend circumcision for otherwise healthy males, i.e. Canada. Yes. I'm fat, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So Canada and England, actually, their rates of circumcision is they're pretty low, too. I think they're like 15% versus ours. So it's like 60, 75%. Yeah. So, you know, 
I, I'm, I go with Canada on this one, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, healthy males, it's, it's going to be a personal decision. Are yeah. there studies that show that there are some benefits to circumcisions? Yes, it can, you know, lower the rate of UTIs um, in the first year of life. But really, when you look at the numbers, UTIs are already so rare, yes. okay, in boys, that when you look at the numbers, it means that they would have to circumcise 50 to 100 boys in order to prevent one UTI in one boy who may have not otherwise developed an infection. Yeah. So to me, I still, I, I will help them, I will guide them, um, but it's really up to the parents and their cultural and religious beliefs and what they want to do in regards to that. And of course, this is when we're talking about, you know, healthy males, okay, not males that have uh, potentially other issues going on. Absolutely. I obviously love you for that reason is that it is 100% a parent's choice. And there is still some stigma for people who go either way, you know, if a parent does circumcise their boy or not. I mean, social media is where it's at where people are like, well, how could you, you violate it? It's, it's kind of exhausting that people are so worried about the what a parent is doing with their child's penis. I'm like, don't yeah. you have other things that need that you need to focus on in your life that you're so worried <laughs> about what a, a parent is doing with their son's penis? I'm like, so confused. I'm so there's a lot there's a lot of like obsession about those things I will say that even in clinic you know I'm like anyways but you're right that it is a choice but a parent needs to remember that it is a personal cultural religious choice and it's not a medical need so when you when you take that out of the equation that it has to happen because my child will end up having some major complications if I don't no it is we see like I my in my practice I think it's a 50 50 split I see 50 percent that are 50 percent that are not and a lot of the, all of them have great outcomes. Now, you if you are uncircumcised, you have to teach your child as they grow up about proper hygiene. You know, um, eventually as they get older, um, you know, if they if the foreskin is able to retract, you have to teach them how to clean properly. But in the newborn period, you're not pushing anything back. You're not you know having to retract out of um, discomfort or anything like that. You're literally just cleaning the tip and hygiene with proper hygiene. That risk of UTIs, the other risks that there was reported of you know in the future ST things like that, um, cancers, these things are so rare. And if with proper hygiene so. and protection, hello, yeah, hello, that's because, the most important yeah. thing I tell parents, because I'm even like, if when you get to that yeah. point, you just need to practice safe sex. <laughs> yes, because even if you're uncircumcised, you need Which to practice Which I would be that. telling you anyways, exactly. Right. So exactly. to me, the whole debate on, well, yeah, they're going to, I'm like, no, but you need to be focusing on protection because even if your child's circumcised, it, you know, there is still a risk, obviously, of STDs. So there are some small percentage of medical conditions, you know, there are some situations where the foreskin becomes very tight, um, that then if that's happening, then we do recommend maybe doing a circumcision, but it's very rare that these things happen. Um, and there's no way to predict it. So yes, agree with you, parental choice. You don't have to, Oh, you don't owe anyone an explanation on what you did with your child's penis. Just decide for yourself, maybe talk to your pediatrician if you need some guidance, but the reality is sometimes you have to make that decision before you meet your pediatrician, you know, in the hospital. Right. So decide with you and your partner and that's it. That's all you need to decide. Um, exactly. You know, and no one, you don't owe anyone else an explanation and your pediatrician should not judge you either way, hopefully. Absolutely yeah. not. Definitely not. So the next one has to do with food. Okay. And this is actually happening a lot with pediatricians still. And I'm shocked that some pediatricians are still recommending this. Okay. Wait until one year to give allergenic foods such as peanuts. Oh, Definitely not true. So we yes, changed not this. true. And yeah. you know, you and I were actually lucky. I think this changed in what 2015 or 2013. Yes, when we were still we're yeah, still, in residency. still in residency. So we, yeah. we saw this whole thing change, right? Because yeah. back before then, 
they were actually delaying, obviously, cow's milk until one, which is still the same, right? But eggs until two, and then peanuts, tree nuts, fish, all this stuff until three, right? So back in, back in the days, back in early 2000, and then that started to change, right? So it's definitely yeah. not true. You can introduce the allergenic foods as early as, you know, four to six months, depending, obviously, talk to your pediatrician about those things. But you do not need to wait until one year to start to introduce those things. Absolutely. And ah, I, I, I was job searching when I left residency. And as you know, we, like you said, we both trained at a time when we knew that this wasn't real and that you can introduce earlier and earlier is better. And when I was job searching, I was looking at their websites and on the website, you know, on the educational platform on a website for a practice, Mm -hmm. it said like introduction of food. I was looking at their advice, wait till one year to introduce peanuts. And I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot work here because if this is the case, maybe I should work there so I can change their, their views. Um, I I ended up not going to that practice to work, but it was so, it boggled my mind that there are some pediatricians out there that are not up to date on the recommendation. But if you're a pediatrician saying to wait, you need to ask why, because again, if your child has some sort of medical condition that warrants a delay, like just say severe, severe eczema or something going on that warrants a delay, But even if they're telling you to delay, I want you to ask your pediatrician, why are you asking me to delay? Because I don't want it to be that I want them to know what the reasoning is. Because for even for Mm -hmm. family history of food allergens, there's very rare situations that we're recommending to delay the introduction of allergenic foods. So you really need to, you know, encourage that um, in terms of the peanuts, you know, and also egg too, right? You, when do you say eggs? So when do you allow eggs and peanuts to be introduced? Uh, whenever we start solid. Yes, perfect. And I say the same thing. Like some parents are are waiting for eggs until nine months. I'm like, what is this magical rule that it has to happen at nine months? Once you start feeding your baby solids, 100% they can start with eggs, peanuts, tree nuts. Any food is okay except for honey up until the age of one and raw raw fish. Yeah. Thousand times a day. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? And, And, you know, I think sometimes with the egg is that they don't know how to introduce it. Yes. You know, they're like, oh, eggs in their mind, they're thinking, you know, scrambled eggs. But I mean, you can boil them, you can puree the eggs, you can make it into a little paste, you can introduce, you can put a little bit of egg in the food yes. in like a vegetable that you've already introduced. You know, you, there's a lot of ways that you can introduce these things. You definitely don't have to wait until nine months, 10 months, one years old, or, or whatever the case is, you can introduce all those things, you know, whenever it is that we start solids. And the only thing that is still definitely Definitely a no-no is, you know, um, honey. Yeah. And the egg, you know, with the egg, I not, it's not sponsored, but I use little mix-ins. It's available at Target and online and they have like the um, powdered egg, powdered tree nut, powdered peanut. Um, And so I used it mainly for the egg because when Ryan was a little, you know, we just started puree first, but before we went to baby lead weaning, he wasn't able to obviously self-feed. So I would, I would mix it in with avocado, you know, and I would, I would mix it in with other things so that he would get the egg exposure because he wasn't able to really, you know, chew with his gums yet, like scrambled eggs, things like that. But you're right. right. There's so many different ways kind of going into um, the introduction of allergenic foods, you know, the, the three day wait with, you know, different foods. What's your kind of opinion on introduction of the foods when you finally do start? Yeah. So, you know, back in the days, I say this, they used to say cereal, then, you know, veggies, then fruits, right? We've talked about this yeah. before. And I think the reason for that is because they thought, 
well, if I give them the fruits first, they won't want the veggies. And really and truly, that's not true. Okay, there's a ton of, you know, sugar in breast milk, it's not going to, you know, develop, they're not going to develop a sweet tooth, they actually already have a sweet tooth. So no matter which way you introduce it, they probably most of them actually do prefer the the fruits regardless. And it's not because you did fruits first, it's just because babies are babies, you know. Um, But my main thing with food introduction is that I do do in the beginning, a single food at once that that's my biggest thing is that I don't do you know a blueberry banana mix yes okay the first time I definitely do single foods um so that's my biggest thing and I mean the AAP recommends three to five days I never do five days to be honest I think delayed reactions are really 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 rare um so but I I do try and do single foods and I do say I do say the three days um single foods but like I said this is not something that we need to stress about yeah so if you're like on sweet potato and then grandma comes the next day and she's doing carrots like don't freak out yeah (laughs) it's not the end of the world like you could do this however it is that you want to do it you just have to know what to look for right and that's the things that you talk to your pediatrician about and I think it's going to be this sort of comfort thing so obviously as a pediatrician I know what I'm looking for and I get that so um so you know we did do single ingredients so I didn't you know I would introduce avocado or banana right and maybe I did a couple days of avocado and a couple then I would do banana. Once I've introduced a few, just say once I've introduced avocado a few times, then maybe I'll add the egg powder. Does that make sense? Because I've introduced avocado a few times and now I'm able to mix. And then once I got comfortable with that, then I would introduce another meal with something else, you know? So it really is sort of this comfortability that you'll get. And like Marie said, we, I have another um, episode about um, allergenic foods and food allergies that you and can listen. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, good. Yes. I love Marie. <laughs> yeah. She's listened to my stuff. And as a fellow mom and pediatrician, I just value her so much for her feedback and stuff. But that episode will go over the, how, you know, the signs of allergies, because as long as you know the signs, and then you can kind of go back and say, yes, I, you know, I noticed this reaction for breakfast. My child had avocado and egg. As long as you're able to narrow down, right? What we don't want is that you've introduced 10 different things and and you're mm-hmm. like, I don't know what it was, but if you're doing, and now there's things, this huge rash, right? But if you're doing like a couple <laughs> we don't things, know. you can say, you can say, okay, well, yes, I, you know, I introduced avocado and egg, or I had, bana- you know, banana and peach, or whatever it is. But if you're doing like a smoothie with ten different things as a first introduction, you may not be able to know. But if you've, it's it's a comfortability thing, and it's also as you progress. And then the other reason why we, there is no re- reason to do so much in one day is that you're getting the baby used to it. When you're starting food, it's not it's not a game, it's not a rush. It's literally like trialing different things. So in my opinion, I waited the couple, I waited like, I waited two days, like two to three days. I wasn't really even counting like, okay, Monday and Wednesday. I'm like, okay, well, it's been a couple days. Let's do something different. But more so we did it because I food prepped one thing and I'm like, well, this is what we're going to get. Yeah. And then, and then also there was no rush. And then once I, we did that, there was something else available. So like Marie said, don't beat yourself up if you accidentally or decided to do something sooner, but just know that, Hey, what did I give them in the small chance that there is a reaction? Exactly. The next one and our final one, and I, we could do this forever, but there's so many more we could have done is the, the comment that I hear is toddlers need cow's milk and juice and they should have milk with every meal. Yeah. So not true. <laughs> so yes, all those, yeah, so, so, much not true. so I don't yeah. know about you, how you feel about this, but I actually don't even recommend juice unless kids are constipated. Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's the yes. only time I say do I juice, don't. like I do yeah. prune juice or pear juice if I'm giving it for constipation, but really and truly they need yeah. water. <laughs> they need water. Yes. They don't need juice. I mean, I much rather them eat the actual fruit 
you know, then drink the juice, which is full yes. of, you know, sugar. And, and it, in regards to the cow's milk portion, I'm definitely not a pediatrician that believes that, you know, toddlers have to be on cow's milk. Okay, because really, when you think about it, we're the only other animal that drinks another animal's milk. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like we weren't really made to drink cow's milk. I mean, it definitely has a good amount of protein for us, a good amount of fat, and it's great for you know brain development, those kind of things. But they could do dairies in other ways. There's there's milk substitutes that they can use for parents that don't want to give cow's milk, and that's just something that I always say: talk to your pediatrician about it, you know, and, and see what other options there are. If you don't want to give cow's milk, you definitely don't have to. Okay, yes. so that the thought that you have to do it, you definitely don't have to, there are other ways for them to get uh, properly balanced, you know, nutritional, nutritious meal, okay, with that has enough calcium and vitamin D, and all those things that you can incorporate in in their, you know, daily uh, intake, okay, that will still be beneficial to them, they definitely don't need juice, they, they don't have to do cow's milk, if parents want to, we talk about it, right, we talk about it, we talk about what kind of milk do you want to use, are you what do you drink at home? That's often the question I ask my parents, right? What do you guys drink? If they're drinking cow's milk, I'm okay, obviously, with them having cow's milk. Um, but they don't they don't necessarily have to do it. Oh, and I'm so happy. I don't think we've ever talked about our juice, our juice advice. But I agree with you that oh, yeah. I, I'm still boggled by the sort of like, when they come to me, and they're like, Oh, you know, so and so told me that I needed to have juice. I'm like, wait, what? And I do know this is out, outdated advice. Um, a lot of older pediatricians are still recommending juice and maybe family members, your child does not need juice. They can have the natural fruit, meaning a water, you know, piece of watermelon, apple, if they're older enough to chew, whatever, but they do not need that in a juice form. I mean, it's, it's not needed. They don't need it. I, I just, it still boggles my mind that this is being recommended. Um, if they're eating fruits and everything else, even the, even if it's marketed as hundred percent fruit juice, just give them the mm -mm. actual fruit. It's like, exactly. I'd rather have them know that even as adults, we shouldn't be drinking juice. You know, the sugar exactly. content, even if it's natural, 100%, they don't need it. Um, and especially the added sugar versions, right? Sugar is, oh, people are not going to like hearing me say it like this. Oh. Sugar is a drug. And it it, we need to stop this obsession with juices because, I mean, it, it's like a gateway drug. I mean, they literally have it. I've seen it in my office, Marie. Like, they want juice, juice, Like, juice, literally, juice. I've seen children pounding juices. And it's almost like I see their eyes. They have one. They throw it to the ground. And the mom is giving them another because it's a fix. And I'm like, <laughs> whoa. Like, it's a drug. And let's be honest, milk also has sugar. Milk is also, in a way, right. a little addictive. So like you said, I also think, I think you know this for a long time, the AAP did recommend milk with meals um, a long mm -hmm. time. And this was back in the day. Um, and I think they obviously changed their ways that you don't need to do that anymore. Um, but no, you do not need to have milk with meals. Absolutely not. Water with meals, water, water, water with meals, water, especially yeah, after six months, they're drinking water with meals, um, breast milk, obviously, and formula is still primary, um, you know, in between, but water with meals, and the milk is going to be replacing the formula. Or if you choose to stop breastfeeding, that's going to place it after the one year mark, but you do not need cow's milk. Like you said beautifully that we're the only species that is drinking another um, animal's milk, but it's not <laughs> dangerous to give milk by any means. Don't, don't believe that it's, it's a yes, bad thing, but if not. your child is not drinking cow's milk, but is eating well, having yogurts and cheeses and some sorts, some, yep. some way of getting calcium and vitamin D, there's no minimum 
milk intake. There's a maximum, you know, I usually say 20 yeah. to 24 ounces max. 24. Yeah, yep. max because. Um, and that's if they're not taking any other right. forms of, you know, dairy. Right. But there's no minimum. And so don't believe that your child needs a minimum of milk, um, unless, of course, there's some nutritional thing that your pediatrician's going to. But you serve water with meals. Milk is just an additional thing. Max it, cap it out at 24 ounces. And just please try to reduce the juice or don't give it all together. If you are a parent listening to this and you have not entered the juice phase, don't even introduce it like don't, don't, don't even bother because it's it's one of those things like screen time like once you introduce it trying That's to it, remove it, it is is like trying to remove a drug you have to do a weaning process yeah. it's a fix and i i see it in my office with the eyes like when i see the child's eyes look <laughs> dazed and i mean i've seen it so i mean literally pounding it to the ground like they literally had some sort of drug and i i don't i know i don't i'm not this anti sugar person i'm not saying that your child can't have a cookie or like an ice cream don't get me wrong it's the liquid form of sugar that i get concerned about because they can consume volumes of it without even realizing it do not feel ashamed if you gave your child a little bit of your treat right but limit the sugar intake via liquids i agree with that completely Yep. Absolutely. Oh, we could talk forever. We could. Oh my gosh. Literally. I love this. You are amazing. <laughs> I can go another know, hour and talk to you. You know, you know you're going to be on again in some way. We have to do something else. I definitely, we need to do that one about um, myths. Like not, this is obviously um, outdated advice, but there's one that I had talked to Marie about in terms of myths that you hear, like, um, you know, you have, you get sick if you have um, wet hair or if you oh, go yeah. out in the cold, we have to do a fact and a fact and fiction one um, in, in the future. But, oh, Marie, thank you so much for joining us now would you have any like closing advice for anyone listening um you know as a mother and as a pediatrician um as a take-home message um keep in mind that you know your family means well right but they don't always have the the best advice and it's okay for you to ask your pediatrician about those things okay and also you know parenting is really difficult right? So don't beat yourself up. Okay. We all make mistakes. Mona and I have made, oh my yes. God, I make mistakes every day, <laughs> you know? So, so these are just guidelines, opinions, you know, things, things that we want you guys to, to think about. Um, but definitely, you know, forgive yourself and, and, you know, every day is a new day. And my, my advice would be what you just said, that if, you know, obviously your, your family members mean well, if you go into your pediatrician's office and they give you advice and you're unsure of it because you've heard something else or because you weren't sure of that advice, ask them. Yes. Say, hey, ask. I love that. I love that you said that, but can you explain why you're asking me to do this? Yes. Sometimes I think parents forget that they can ask us questions on the whys, right? Mm -hmm. Why are you recommending? You're not questioning us. Yeah. It's okay. You know, it's yes, not going to come off like that. <laughs> and we we know the answer. We'll tell you the answer that, hey, we're recommending this because. But if you don't ask us, we don't always have the time or know that, hey, maybe you're unsure of this or that you've been told X, Y, and Z. So right. if you're getting advice from many different places and you are unsure, ask your pediatrician. We are here for you. And sometimes we understand me and Marie are both doctors and we are in a busy practice. We know sometimes we we are kind of busy answering the questions and getting through what we have, but we are there for you and your pediatrician are, is there for you to answer your questions. So definitely don't be afraid to ask us. Okay. Absolutely. Well, not us because we're not your pediatrician, yeah. but your pediatrician. When I say us, I mean, pediatrician. You can ask us too in Mona's box. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yes. <laughs> in my question box. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, Marie, I'm going to have to have you back on again. This was amazing. I can't wait for COVID to be done so we can go back to getting brunch together. I know. 
And we have to get both... the kids together too. Yes, and we need frosés in our life. We do, totally. <laughs> uh, thank you again for joining us. I know this went a little bit um, over everyone, but I'm, I'm sure you got so much out of it. So thanks again, and she'll be back soon. All right, bye. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, please leave a review, share it with a friend, comment on my social media. And if you're not already, follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram. Love doing this for all of you. Have a great rest of your week. Take care. Talk to you soon. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.